it's not your job to stop the meltdowns. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that in this episode, and I say it all the time, but just so you can hear it again, and I'm basically saying this to myself as well because I need this reminder. It's not your job to stop the meltdowns. It's not your goal. It's not even on the menu. It's not an option. It's not available. Don't look for that option. Welcome to the Sensory Wise Solutions Podcast for Parents, where parents can get real, actionable strategies to support kids with sensory processing disorder. I'm Laura, OT and mom to Liliana, a sensory sensitive kid who inherited my anxiety and my love for all things Disney. Consider me your new OT mom bestie. I know my stuff, but I also know what it's really like in the trenches of parenting a child with sensory processing disorder. Okay, mom, enough about me. Let's start the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm trying to be a little quiet today because I am recording while she's actually taking a nap. She has not napped in forever. So trying my best to be quiet. You know how that is. All right. So today's topic is one that I have way more experience in it than I would like to. Yep. I am talking about those meltdowns. So I do want to be clear here. And if you've followed me for a while, then you know, this is one of those hills I die on. It's that a meltdown is very different than a tantrum. And if you want to know more about how I define and see the difference, then you can head to my Instagram at the OT butterfly and check out my highlight section called meltdowns. But very quickly for the purpose of this episode, here's my take on tantrums versus meltdown in like 30 seconds. Okay. Tantrums and meltdowns can mostly look the same. So there's the crying, kicking, screaming, hitting, biting, all of it. But typically, once a tantrum is over, and they usually end much faster than a meltdown, like less than 10 minutes, then the child kind of wipes their tears and moves on. And when a child has a meltdown, usually stemming from like anxiety or sensory overload, not only does the actual duration of the meltdown itself last longer, like some bad ones for us have lasted up to 90 minutes. Um, An average one for us is like 30 to 45 minutes. But After the meltdown, the child's typically still dysregulated or just kind of off for some time after, like a few hours after, sometimes the rest of the day, sometimes even a few days after if they have some pretty big meltdowns. So I want to be clear, though, that tantrums and meltdowns can both occur in neurotypical children and in neurodivergent children. So an autistic, anxious, or sensory processing disorder child can have a, quote, plain vanilla tantrum, which is what I call them, just as much as a neurotypical child can experience a sensory overload meltdown. The difference is that neurodivergent children are just simply more prone to having more meltdowns than tantrums. All right, so now that that is settled, here's my main point for today's episode. The one thing you have to know and accept about meltdowns is the fact that you can't stop them. You cannot stop meltdowns. You can't stop them once they happen. And not only are you not responsible responsible for this, not only is it an uphill battle if you try to stop it, but I would also argue that you're doing your child a disservice if you continue to focus 
on stopping them from having meltdowns. It's not your job to stop the meltdowns. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that in this episode, and I say it all the time, but just so you can hear it again, and I'm basically saying this to myself as well because I need this reminder. It's not your job to stop the meltdowns. It's not your goal. It's not even on the menu. It's not an option. It's not available. Don't look for that option. But hear me out. I know that meltdowns absolutely suck. And I am no stranger to meltdowns, the real bad ones. If you want to hear more about them, go back to episode two and three for my stories on this. But the bad ones are just uh, ingrained in my memory. And I'm very much traumatized still from them. And we still have some pretty awful ones. And of course, I wish that we didn't have to deal with them. You know, if um, the genie would show up out of his lamp and granted me one wish, I might wish that my child wouldn't have meltdowns. But the entire idea and concept of having a neurodivergent brain and being a neurodivergent individual, like our kids with sensory needs and kids who are autistic or have anxiety, the whole concept of their brains being neurodivergent is that their brains are literally wired differently. Their brains process things differently. And as a result, they experience stress and other things differently. And then they show that stress and emotions differently. So I'm not saying that for the rest of your life, you're dealing with 90-minute meltdowns and this is just the cards you've been dealt. But I am saying that acceptance is part of the process. I've learned so much from my own therapy with my therapist as an anxious mom to learn to accept my anxiety and the symptoms and the signs and the traits of being an anxious person rather than trying to hide it or push it away or distract away from it. And I've also started applying that to some aspects of motherhood and raising a neurodivergent child because I noticed that the more I try to go against the grain and wish and pray and hope that some parts of her would be different, the harder it is to tolerate those hard days and those meltdowns. So accepting that meltdowns is part of how her brain experiences things helps a little. I'm not going to lie, they still suck, but this perspective helps take the edge off just a little bit. So I recently had the opportunity to interview Nicole Parrish, who is an adult who is who is autistic and Um, You can hear that on episode 12 from last week, but I've also heard from her and other autistic adults and other people, other adults who still experience meltdowns, and they share that while they are adults, they still are very prone to experiencing sensory overload meltdowns. And this can happen from stressful environments, from routine changes in their lives, and it can just completely overwhelm their nervous system and results in a meltdown, which looks different in adulthood, but it's still a major fight or flight response. But something that they also say is that throughout their lives, they've learned what tools work for them during those meltdowns, what to do when they melt down, and also how to advocate with their friends and family and coworkers to let them know what they might need during a meltdown. So that 
that is our job. Our job isn't to stop the meltdowns. It's not our job to try to distract them mid-meltdown or try to completely shut down their feelings by saying it's okay or it's not a big deal. Our job, well, okay, our job is, is two things. First, obviously, keep your child and the person safe during the meltdowns and also people around them. So we can't let them hurt themselves or hurt others. That by far is the number one goal, your number one goal. But secondly, our job is to support them through the meltdowns by giving them what they need in that moment and some moments after. And newsflash, majority of individuals who experience a lot of meltdowns, particularly neurodivergent individuals, need pure silence on your part during the meltdowns. So obviously the person melting down is probably going to be making a lot of noise, but the best thing you can do for them in those meltdowns is to zip it and to be quiet. And I mean silence. I have sat through many meltdowns with my own daughter and with children I work with who completely escalate with any extra auditory input. Even when you say things like, oh, you're so mad, or I see you're really frustrated, or I know you're really sad the cookie broke. Or even when we say things like, oh, you're okay, it's okay, you can cry. All of those things that are part of respectful parenting and gentle discipline where you validate those emotions, all of those great things to say and to do around our kids is just not the time to do it when your neurodivergent child is melting down. So I think sometimes we think that our kids expect us to say something back to them, especially when your kids are talking to you during the meltdown or worse, maybe they say things like really mean to us and you want to say something back. It can be really hard for us to just sit there in silence. But trust me, if you haven't tried this yet for a neurodivergent child, being silent is the path of least resistance. So again, depending on the child, whether it's a client that I'm working with or if it's my own child, I usually know what they want. Sometimes it's a rub on the back. Sometimes it's my physical presence, but not me touching them. Sometimes it's eye contact. Sometimes it's no eye contact, but mostly no words. And then usually after the meltdown, when I can tell there's like a little window of opportunity, I'll offer some words of support and validation like we talked about and maybe offer a hug or some deep breaths or heavy work or any other physical touch that might be regulating for them. But I have to wait for them to de-escalate from that intense fight or flight mode. But here's the catch because this is really hard, right? Staying silent during the meltdowns And not trying to stop them is super hard because we are not robots. We have our own nervous system to protect and we're not always regulated ourselves. So staying silent during the meltdowns is hard. And it also doesn't mean that our kids are going to have less meltdowns. I'm not saying stay silent during the meltdowns. This is what's going to stop them from happening. That's not what I'm saying here. But I'm saying stay silent for the meltdowns because it's the path of least resistance. It'll help you not escalate them even more. But then long term, we're showing our kids that we accept them, that meltdowns are part of their picture right now. And we're here to support them, even if it means just sitting next to them with those really, really, really big, intense emotions. 
We're showing them that they have that right to melt down if that's what their brain tells them to do. We're showing them what tools they can use or ask for. And silence is actually a tool um, that they can ask for for the next meltdown. So as they get older, they know what works best for them. So my mental process then when my daughter starts having a meltdown is first I like take a, an inventory of the environment and what's going on and ask myself, can my child safely melt down here? If she has a full-blown meltdown, is she completely safe in this environment? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes my husband is working from home and he's on a really important work call and no, it's not appropriate for her to sit in the room right next to him fully screaming and having a meltdown. So I'll have to move her to a room where she can be safe and melt down. Usually it's the car um, on some on some really big days. But once I determine that she's in a space where she can melt down all she wants, I plant myself down and buckle up and I limit the auditory input and I just ride the wave. Sometimes I will make eye contact with her. She will yell things at me. She will call me names and I'm not ignoring her. I'm standing next to her at a safe distance. Again, a lot of this time it's in the car and I'm just, sometimes I will nod, sometimes I'll, it'll change. I'll definitely respond to her cues, but not verbally. And that's just how I figured out what works best for her. And I'm sure a lot of you have not tried this yet because the most common suggestion out there for when kids melt down is meant for neurotypical kids who are having tantrums when you validate those feelings and that might help them. But a melting down sensory sensitive person probably does not want to hear your it's okays or any part of your voice actually so there are days and maybe situations or certain times when you really don't have the convenience or the time to be there this present for them and like sit through the entire meltdown I get that um Sometimes, like I said, it's an inconvenience to your schedule or there are other siblings to, to think about or maybe it's because you're having a terrible day yourself. You might slip up and say something you don't mean or you yell and all of those things that I have done myself and that's okay. I like to shoot for at least like 75 to 80% of my responses to be like the ideal way that I would like to respond and 20% of the time I just give myself a pass. But at the very least... And this is what I tell all my clients and what I remind myself at the very least, you always have the option to apologize and repair with your child later. You can apologize about losing your temper in the middle of the tantrum. You could apologize about yelling. You could apologize about not being able to give them the hug that they wanted. Whatever it is, you can apologize for it later. And it's actually good for you to model making some mistakes and taking responsibility for those mistakes later. That's completely healthy and that's a great thing to be able to show your child. So at least rest easy knowing that. Okay, so that's it for today. This may not have been the meltdown magic pill tip you were looking for, but at the very least, I hope it gives you the permission that you needed to know that you don't have to be the perfect person and have the perfect response to every single meltdown and it gives you the permission to just sit still and be quiet during a meltdown and that you don't have to be the band-aid the solution for your child's emotions rather you just are there to support them 
If you are looking for more specific tips on what to do between meltdowns and after meltdowns or even before the meltdown, then you can download my free meltdown. Um, it's called the Demystifying Meltdowns Survival Guide, um, and it's free. You can download that at www.theotbutterfly.com meltdowns. I will leave a link to that below in the show notes. And one last thing before I sign off, I wanted to give a quick shout out and thank you to Laura, love your name by the way, who sent me a very sweet message and a coffee PayPal tip. So I am enjoying my iced coffee right now as we speak because it's It has been way too hot in Southern California the past week, so I'm enjoying that so much. Thanks, Laura, and thanks, everyone, for being here. We will talk next week. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating it and leaving a review, which helps other parents find me as well. Want to learn more from me? I share tons more over on Instagram at The OT Butterfly. See you next time.